Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. All right, take your Bible and open to the little bitty letter of Jude. It's right after the even smaller, shorter letter of 3 John. Or 3 John, as it seems to become popular these days. It does not say 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, but 1, 2, and 3. If you hit Revelation, you went too far. I'm going to read from the letter of Jude this morning. I won't say Jude chapter 1 because there is no, like it's just Jude. You do know the chapters and verses weren't there, put, put there by the original authors, right? Okay, that was put there for us to some, give some kids some job to do in vacation Bible school to memorize in Scripture. It helps us know the address. But there's no chapter you'll notice in the short letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James... To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day." Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear." Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. 
They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, and these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, as we come before you, our Bibles are open. And more than our Bible, this is your word. And Father, as we look into your truth this morning, it's my prayer that you would look upon us by your grace so that we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would quiet our hearts as we wait for you. Yes, we wait for you, Lord. For your name and your renown are the desires of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the letter of Jude. I told you last week I love whatever letter or book I'm preaching out of, but I really love Jude. It's in the top five. That's the, I don't know how I get 66 in the top five, but there's all seem to be there. But this one, this one has lots and lots of fun things to work through. This is why I'm only doing one sermon today and not a series. But we'll come back to Jude. I've preached through this book before um, in, uh, in about 30 sermons, and it's great. No, I'm teasing. But it's, it's a fantastic book, and it's gotten so much to say to the church today. We think it's a little, little bitty thing, and you may not have ever read it or even heard a series out of it. I hope you have. But I don't want you to mistake the length of this letter to mean that it lacks importance. Because rather than a marathon, it is a sprint. And it's not a 100-yard sprint, it's a 40-yard dash, okay? Like when I was a kid, we had this thing in George West called Little Olympics. And they put the chubby kids like me. When I was that little, I was slow. And I was, uh, uh, yeah, I was just slow, This is, as you could call it, uh, slow. And uh, I defined slow. You look in Webster's Dictionary, there's my picture of slow. And, and so they put the slow kids in the, in the short race because we can't go very far. And, and it was actually a 35-yard dash. They cut five yards off of it. But don't think that that's any less important than the bigger races because that race counted the same for point totals in the class to win the track meet as, as the longer races did. And so we don't want to dismiss Jude for the lack, uh, for the lack of length. It is... It is so very important, you know, like, I'll equate it like this. If Paul is the friend that has the huge word quota every day and can't stop talking until they meet that quota, Jude is the one who is short, sweet, and to the point and drinks his coffee. He just gets it out there. He throws a punch. It's a knockout punch. It's not a long delay. One, two, to ten, and you're out. 
So when Jude sat down to write this letter, as he confesses in verse 3, he was eager to write about our common salvation. What a great topic. He probably would have maybe written a little bit longer on it, but God changed his heart. God redirected his pen that day. He felt compelled to sound the alarm on the false teachers who had slipped into the church unnoticed. And he isn't kind with his description, as you just heard. He pulls no punches. It is a scathing report of these spiritual counterfeits who have slipped into the church unnoticed. These false teachers were crafty with their charisma. They were crafty with their words. It would do no no good at this point for the church in Jude's time to build walls of defense to keep them out because the enemy was already within. The best way to spot a counterfeit, my friend, is to spend time with the original. To know the original so well that when you hear a counterfeit, you know it's counterfeit. I want to give you four books this morning to reference. And I would encourage you to research them and find them. The first one is by Trevin Wax. I meant to have them with me so you could look at them. But the first one is by Trevin Wax. And it's called Counterfeit Gospels. He wrote it, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago, maybe longer. And he, wa- he walks through all of the counterfeit gospels of our day by giving you the real, comparing them to the real original. The second one is called Getting Over Yourself. It's by Dean and Sarah. Dean and Sarah, Getting Over Yourself. And he references and focuses mostly on the prosperity gospel and the gospel of ourself that we have created in our own day. Then the, the third one is by Costi Hinn. That's H-I-N-N. Yes, the nephew of Benny Hinn, who will confess in his testimony he was not saved when he was with his uncle, wonders if his uncle is saved, and found the true gospel while attending Dallas Baptist University, playing baseball for them, and his coach continued to share the gospel over and over and over every week at practice. He came to faith in Christ and now works defending this very gospel, contending for the faith that he was not walking in before, but now is. It's called Defining Deception. Defining deception. He walks through the Word of Faith movement. And it would be very important for you to find that book and read it because you might be surprised at some of those names that some of you might follow that are in that book. Defining Deception. The last one is called Christianity and Wokeness. It's by Owen Strahan. Christianity and Wokeness. Talking about since 2020. Uh, how wokeness has invaded the gospel and how it's trying to overtake the true gospel. Owen Strahan. Those would be worth your time of reading, and I've read them all several times, and if you'd be interested, I'd be happy to talk with you about them. We are called in this letter with a sense of urgency to proclaim the gospel, but also to contend for the faith. So let's walk through this. We're going to walk through the first seven verses this morning and uh, if we were going through a series, we'd stop sooner than that. But to get the gist of it, we'll, we'll cover this much this morning. First off, let's just look at the greeting from Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And it's always important, my friend, to go through the introduction. Don't just skip to where you think the meat is, because there's always meat in the greeting. It would be something to jump right into verses 3 and 4 and save some time. But we'd miss who this fella is, because he really doesn't... He doesn't claim who he is, right? This man, his name is Judas. Not that Judas. That Judas is dead. There are actually five 
men in the New Testament by that name, but only one Judas is the brother, the half-brother of James, the full brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay? Here, this is Judas, or Jude for short. He does not say, hey, I'm Jude, by the way. Yeah, my half-brother is Jesus. Right? Some of us would like to claim that, wouldn't we? Give us a sense of authority. We would suddenly come to attention. This guy's got something to say. I mean, he saw Jesus growing up, right? He was there when Jesus, you know, was doing his thing. Like, he'd know everything about Jesus, right? He said he could have said that. Perhaps most of us would have appealed to that family tie, but he doesn't say that. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. You see... One reason perhaps Jude would not have claimed that is because the Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus went home and the crowds gathered around him, the people, so that he and his disciples couldn't even eat, but his family hears of what's happening, and it says in verse 21, Mark chapter 3, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Not even Jesus' family understood who Jesus was. So Jude doesn't claim family ties. He claims service for Christ Jesus, his Lord. Friends, if the earthly family of Jesus needed the gospel, how much more do we? If Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the full brother of James, need the gospel, how much more do we? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Friends, you know by that that this letter is good news, that this is life-changing, this gospel, this faith that we proclaim. As Jude calls himself a servant, we might be thinking of the the word diakonos. Uh, That's where we get deacon, right? That's often when we hear that word servant. But this actual word is much stronger. I think some of the English translations have done us no favors by giving us a softer translation of servant rather than what it means, which is slave. The slave has a negative connotation in our 21st century, but it gives us the point. We don't come to Jesus on our terms. He came to us on his terms. We don't sign a contract with Jesus, laying out the conditions on both sides. It's Jesus as Lord or not at all. And it shows Jude's humility. And we start thinking about somehow our entitlement. We've got another thing coming. If we call on Jesus as Lord, then we are his doulos, his slave. We are also his servant. Friends, it is best to be a servant and a slave of the Savior than self-righteous sloth. We might say, I am my own person. I'll be who I want to be. Nobody owns me. Well, then you are not ready to contend for the gospel And you need the gospel. Now, as part of his greeting, Jude introduces his writing style too. It's called triplets. I don't know if you noticed that. He always gives things in pairs, not pairs, but threes, triplets. Everything comes in a three. So the first one we find in verse one. He says, to those who are called, beloved, and kept. Called in Christ, called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be called? This calling is essential This calling is is central to our identity in Christ. And you see, as we talked about 
in John chapter 20, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Here again, you see the initiative of God in saving sinners. It goes way back because God is the one who does the calling. It isn't the church that does the calling. It isn't the preacher that does the calling. It is God who calls and brings us into salvation. Salvation, we would say over and over, began in the heart of God. Again, Genesis 3.15, the time and time again, renewing that vow, renewing that covenant with Abraham and on down the line. So Jude is referring back to that time where God specifically called this church he's writing to to salvation. In Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, it says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And Peter, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. O glorious day. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are called by God. Second, then he says you are beloved in God. Not by God, but note it's not that. He says beloved in God the Father. Though beloved by God is completely true, Jude says beloved in God. That's looking at our current situation. Again, called by God, that's looking past tense. That happened back there. It's still true today. And today you are beloved by God in this current situation. And we are beloved by God in Christ. His love is constant for those who are in Christ. It's not that we were so lovely. He's like, oh, look at this lovely people here. They're so kind and generous and precious and holy in every way. Because of all of their goodness, I will love them. He said, no, look at these filthy rags. Look at these sinners. I love them anyway. He loved us despite the sin. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world in this way, he sent his only begotten son. God sent Jesus to display that great love, this great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. In this, John wrote, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitution, the atonement for our sins. Friends, because of that, we see the proof that his love never fails. His love never changes. His love does not compromise. His love does not quit. And his love will not disappoint. John, 1 John 3, 16, John wrote, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It isn't that Jesus delivered us, and now the Father has to accept us, but that the Father loved us, and in that love sent Jesus to die for us. So in that love, displayed through Jesus, God the Father would call us. Then he says we are kept for Jesus. That's a little bit of a forward-looking thing, that until Jesus comes, we are kept for him. Those who are called are also carefully watched and guarded. He is our refuge in the storm. When the enemy comes against us, he is our stronghold. Preserved, he says, in Jesus Christ. Kept for, kept by Jesus Christ. If you'll remember back to John 17 when we worked through the Lord's prayer in John 17, if you'll remember, he says this in verse 11 of that prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Friends, he is our keeper. He is the one who watches over us. In verse 2, Jude prays for the church as another triplet. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May you experience rich mercy. God's mercy, friends, can sustain you in the toughest of times. He can encourage you and build up your heart in the most difficult of situations and trials. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in time of need. Jude simply praying, may mercy, peace, and love, these three keep us moving forward as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And what Jude does next sets the stage for the rest of this short letter. It's this knockout blow of truth. He makes an urgent and needed appeal to the church. Look again at verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. You might remember the movie Rocky Three and that story a great story, great series of movies where Rocky in Rocky III had won the heavyweight championship from Apollo Creed. And his trainer, the old man Mick, schedules bouts for him, and he continues to fight, but the opponents that he's fighting are less than qualified to fight in those title bouts, and so Rocky continues to defend his title. But there's one man sitting out in the audience watching Rocky, and he knows something about Rocky. Rocky is not training. He's not training the way he should be training. It's, a, it's more of a show than the way Rocky was brought up in Philadelphia. And his name was Clubber Lane. And as Clubber is sitting idly by, he's just waiting for his opportunity. He finally gets that opportunity as Rocky half-heartedly trains for that next match against Clubber Lane. Lane knocks him out. And Rocky loses the title. And Rocky's beside himself. He's, de he's depressed. He doesn't know what's happening. A virtual unknown slipped in, unaware to Rocky Balboa, and knocked him out. A surprise to many. And that is just one of the ways that our enemy and our adversary works against the church to undermine the gospel ministry of the local church. And what Jude does here is sound those warning shots telling us that there are false teachers in the church. They will come in unnoticed. They will twist, they will plunder, and they will pervert the faith that we hold so dear. Typically in the name of tolerance or in the name of prosperity. Now, let me remind you, Jude says in verse four that they came in unnoticed. More on that in just a moment. Look at verse three. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Such a great topic. But it's necessary for Jude, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to correct course and write to exhort the church to contend for the faith. What Jude says is not a suggestion for the church. If we take it as a suggestion, then we'll not contend. When we decide to contend, it'll be too late if we just take it as a suggestion. There's also this definite article here. It isn't contend for faith, but contend for the faith. There's a difference. There's a big difference. A lot of people today will say, oh, I have faith. Oh, in what? 
In what? I have faith. You hear that on TV a lot with athletes. You hear it on the news. You hear it all over. You read it in media. You'll even hear it from people that want to have some kind of special power. Oh, I have faith. In what? He's not talking about some abstract ideology here. You can have faith in a lot of things. You put your faith in that chair this morning when you sat down, I hope. <laughs> right? We can have faith. People have faith. People of faith. Today, that means you have some kind of religion you hold to. But Jude is saying you must contend for the faith. He is laser focused on the faith. We'll get to that. But he says, first, contend. That word comes from a military or athletic contest. Contend for the faith. If you look down into the root of that word, you'll find agony. You'll find the Greek word for agony. It's a struggle. It's an intense effort. It's strenuous. It is effort for the faith. It is going to stretch you. It is going to be difficult. Even though we know the victory belongs to Christ, we are facing an enemy who is bound and determined to mess us up. He is bound and determined to clubber lane us, if you will. Contend for the faith. That faith is the gospel that saves us. Contend for the faith. Following that same theme of Rocky III, after his defeat, the man he defeated for the title, Apollo Creed, takes it upon himself to re-energize Rocky's career. Rocky's got a bad habit of always punching with one hand and not being fast, being slow, just taking punches and trying to give the knockout blow himself. But Apollo Creed trains, and Rocky has to, he has to come to grips with, this is not the way I've always done it. This is hard. And if you remember, if you've seen that movie, you remember, I remember the beach scenes where Rocky and Apollo are running, they're racing. And all throughout, as he's struggling personally with his marriage and with his career and his whole personal life, eventually Rocky turns it on. That's when that song, I Have the Tiger, starts playing. You're like, yeah, I'm like, I'm ready to be a boxer, right? I'm ready to start working out. Let's go. And then somebody puts a pie in front of me, and that's over. But then we, we see Rocky, and you know something's going to change because the last race scene you find, you find Rocky, the, the slow white Italian, is now beating Apollo Creed down the beach. Not just beating him, blows him out of the water. You're like, okay, this dude is ready to contend again for the title. And he whoops Clubber Lane like nobody's business. That's, that, that's what it looks like. It is that intense effort and struggle of defending and contending for the faith. Now, let's talk about the faith. That faith is the gospel that saves us. That's why it's not some abstract idea. It is written in stone in the word of God. It is the gospel that has been delivered to us once and for all. There you find that in verse 3. Content for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. If we are to find redemption, if we are to find salvation, this is the gospel that we must cling to. In the context, 
it refers to the body of basic Christian doctrine, the faith, the truth. By this time in the history of the church, by the time he's writing this letter, there is already a core body of truth about Christ. That's what he's referring to. At first, it's oral. It's passed down. It's the the teaching of the apostles that you find in Acts and the other letters that we have, the preaching of that very gospel. But salvation is fixed. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as Paul would write in the book of Romans. And so we are called to contend for the basic Christian doctrine, the substance of apostolic faith. That doctrine, please notice, is complete once and for all. There ain't no guy coming around in the 21st century in 2023 going to add to what God has already put in his book. No one. So this automatically should cross out anyone in history that has come along and said, well, no, he left something out and he's revealed himself to me with some golden plates or some speech up on the hillside somewhere out in Timbuktu. No. The faith is complete. It is here. It is wrapped up, sealed up, and has been delivered once and for all. And Jude says that we are to take these doctrines, the faith, the gospel, and live by them. There is no need for new revelation. When you hear somebody say, friends, God's doing a new thing. He's saying something new. Cross them off the list. If you want to listen, please have your Bible open, not on your phone. Have your Bible open. Get a good study Bible. Get it open and listen to what they're saying. It ain't something new. They're telling you a lie. They're trying to get you to follow them and give money to them. Don't do it. Stick to the core doctrine of the gospel. It's right here. It's all written. There's no need for new revelation. God's work is completed in Christ. The only thing remaining is that Christ will return. You should be ready because it's coming soon, okay? I believe it. All right. We have to keep in mind that we will have disagreements over issues like the return of Christ, not is he coming back or not, but the whole timing thing, millennial, all millennial, premillennial, we can have conversations about that. But all of those millennial views of Christ's return, they all say at the end, yes, he's coming back, all right? So let's move past that. We stick to the core doctrines. We stick to the faith. But there's also with Jude, and you'd see it later in just a few moments, there's this doctrinal side, the faith, but then there's also this practice side. Orthodoxy is what we believe. Orthopraxy is how we practice it, how we live it out. And Jude has both of those playing in his short letter. All right? But that core doctrine, I think, begins, or at least the key part of it, is when Peter says to Jesus this question, who do people say that I am, or who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is our, one of our core confessional beliefs of the faith. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, there you will find it summarized, that core doctrine of the gospel. Let me give you quickly some of those non-negotiables. Okay? Here are some of the non-negotiables on Christian doctrine. The first one would be the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word of God. Second, the full and eternal deity 
of Christ. Just email me. I'll send these to you. You're not going to get them all down. I don't have time. The miraculous virgin birth and the sinless life of Jesus, the Messiah. Fourth, the historical creation of man and woman made in God's image. Not crisscrossing. Number five, the sanctity of all life from conception to natural death. Six, the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. Again, not crossing the line. Verse seven, the sinfulness of all humanity. Not one of us is exempt from that, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Number eight, the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. The bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. And the last one is the return of Christ and the assignment of all people, either into eternal blessedness in heaven forever or eternal condemnation in hell. Those are non-negotiables. Now, who contends for the faith? All of us, the church. Jude isn't addressing the elders of a church or the deacons of a church. He's addressing the church. Every member of the church ought to contend for the faith, which leads us to this point. You must know what you believe and in whom you believe. We must once and for all time understand that Jesus came as the atoning sacrifice, the substitute to pay for our sin. Why? Why does Jude say this? He says, you got to pay attention. Why? Because the false teachers have crept in unnoticed. I had a car, my first car was a 1980 Dodge Aspen. Yeah, the rocket. Fancy. It was a sedan, not a coupe. It was nicknamed Casper because it was white. I think that's probably where we started naming our cars in my family, babe. Though he had a name of Casper, and you might think I could sneak in and sneak out. I think my dad did it on purpose. Not that I was a kid that would go sneak out all the time, but he had a, Casper had a muffler problem, okay? And, and my dad would get it fixed every now and then. The guy would weld it, this thing back in place, but then it would come loose. It would break loose, and everybody in town knew the preacher's kid was coming, all right? There was no sneaking in and sneaking out. But what we find here is that these guys... These guys crept in unnoticed. That means they're creeps, right? They're creeps. They're unnoticed creeps. Write that down. These are certain people. We don't know exactly who they are. He doesn't name any names. But he is going to go back to the past to reinforce this call to contend. How do we identify these creeps who are creeping in unnoticed with their false gospel? First, he says they are ungodly. Look at verse 4. They're ungodly. This is how we know. They're ungodly people. If you want to be able to identify ungodly behavior, you must first know godly behavior. But they live as if God does not exist. So perhaps it is that they, do not honor, they, they certainly don't honor him as Lord and Master. He, they could fit into that category, certainly, that they give lip service to the Lord, but their hearts are far from him. But godly behavior would, the first place I turn to is the fruit of the Spirit, if you're walking with Jesus, the Spirit is in you, he's got control, and he's Lord of your life, then the fruits of the Spirit would be evident in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Come. We got it. 
Genesis, uh, not Genesis, Galatians chapter 5. Let me, show, let, let me share with you an example of where false, false prophets, false teaching, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I don't know if I should use this word or not. This is just dumb. That's as clean as I can put it. Union Theological Seminary. I hesitate to even use the word theological seminary. It's in New York. In 2009, sent out a tweet with a picture. Now, I was supposed to put the picture up there for you, and I forgot to move it over to the computer. But you can find this tweet online. Just look up Union Theological Seminary. And here is the tweet. And there's a picture of this actually going on. It's not a big crowd. There's no gospel here. That's why. There's nobody clinging to this. But there's a few, maybe about 25 or 30. Here's what the tweet says. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? I can't say it. You can't make this stuff up. It is there it is prevalent in so many of our seminaries and universities around the country. My confession to the plant would be, I'm going to fry you and eat you with my red meat. <laughs> but friends, this is what happens when a school or a denomination or the so-called church determines in the foolishness of their thinking that somehow they know better than God's word. So they decide to believe the Bible lacks complete authority... And I'll tell you this much, if you don't stand on the authority of God's word, you have stepped onto a slippery slope that ends with destruction. You see, you probably knew this from your history classes, but Yale, Princeton, Brown, Dartmouth, Duke University, all used to be solid, gospel-centered universities. Yale was started by the Congregationalists. Princeton was started by the Presbyterians who loved revival. Brown was started by Rhode Island Baptists. And Dartmouth was uh, founded by uh, New Hampshire Evangelicals. That's where they all started. They were, they were the, 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 the birthplaces of some of the great awakenings early in our nation's history. But where are they today? You speak up about Christ on any of those campuses, you're out. It's happening in Texas, too. I'm not going to name names this morning of universities, Baptist universities that are going that way, but you should be careful. You just need to be careful. Jude says they pervert the gospel of our God into sensuality. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They view the grace of God as a license to sin. He's echoing what Paul would have said. And this scripture for Jude is often tied into sexual sin. He references Sodom and Gomorrah, which if you go back and read that story back in Genesis, you'll understand the reference that he's making. It's just so much broader than the sin of homosexuality. We make a big deal out of that. We've been making a big deal out of it for the last 20 years, 30 years in the church. Before that, it was other things. Let's just suffice it to say that sexual sin is rampant in all of its various forms. It's all sinful. 
It's all uh, described in scripture as sin and we need to see it as such. It involves pornography, adultery, sexual relations outside of marriage. Certainly the extent even to which Jesus would have taken it, which is the lust of the eyes. But here is what happens. These false teachers not only take out the gospel, but they give license with grace, which means I'm going to do it anyway because God will forgive me anyway. Therefore, I will do this. I will get away with it. That's what you call license. That is sin. It means that they believe forgiveness enables them to live any way they choose. And that is incorrect. That is not biblical. It doesn't happen that way. Friends, the purpose of forgiveness is to move you out of sin and to holy living and service to the Lord. We are freed from sin to a life that is holy and pleasing to God. We've got to understand that. We've got to know that's the direction he's taking us. And this basic Christian confession is not Jesus is forgiving sin, but Jesus is Lord. There's a big difference. What shall we say then, Paul wrote? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That standard of grace without repentance is the charge against these false teachers. Not only do they pervert grace, but they deny the lordship of Jesus. They deny the lordship of Jesus. And friends, if you're not willing to contend for the faith, for the essential core beliefs and doctrines of the gospel, then this is no surprise. Their behavior, their life, is an outright denial of the lordship of Jesus. The gospel does not accommodate our morality, friend. Our morality must conform to the gospel. It is one way or the other. Either you are being transformed by the renewal of your mind in the gospel in Christ, or you're conforming to the world. You can't dabble in both. And so many of us try every day to live in both worlds. Then he gives us a simple reminder from the past. I wish we had some more time to go through all of these and break each one of them down. He pulls some, some stories from outside of Scripture, uh, uh, out of some writings of Enoch, um, but here you basically see the big point is the, the reminder from the past, the sin, and sin and godlessness will not go unpunished forever. It may look like it for a time, but it will not go unpunished forever. You need to keep that in mind. He's got the story of the angels in heaven, the story of the people in the wilderness. All of them end up in chains. The, prom the people in the wilderness, that's the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they don't get to see the promised land. Only two of them, uh, Caleb and Joshua, make it in. Joshua leads them through. The rest of them die in the wilderness. Why? Because they would not follow God and honor him as God. And look what happens to them at the end of verse 7, which will happen to everyone who is not in Christ. There will be a punishment of eternal fire. Let me close with this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived means that there are people trying to deceive us. Do not be deceived. Neither, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? That's one category. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. At one time, we are all in this category. All right? Nobody is excluded from that category. Every one of us. 
And such, Paul wrote, were some of you. There's a change that happened. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What changed? What made the change happen? What made the transformation go? It wasn't something that we sinners did because we're over here living in our sin. It is something that God has done for us in the sending of Jesus. Jesus happened. The gospel happened. He washed us. He sanctifies us. He justifies us, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Friends, the change happens with Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something else. It is Jesus and only Jesus. God rules. We sin. God has provided the salvation for us, and his name is Jesus. If you would bow your head and close your eyes as we come to our time to respond this morning. The call to all of us today is to pick up the mantle of contending for the faith, of hearing the call from Jude to take up the striving, to take up the gospel, and to stand. It is going to be hard. It is going to come with agony. And yet we know at the end of the struggle, there is the glory of Christ and victory and defeat for the enemy. That is the call to all of us, but some of you this morning may not have ever trusted in this gospel. That transformation hasn't taken place yet for you. I'm going to give you that opportunity today. If you would, admit your sin before God. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell anyone else. You're admitting it to him. Admit your sin to God, that you need to repent. Now, repentance is key. Repentance is turning away from the sin to trust in him. That's where the journey of sanctification begins. A walking away from what was to what is in Christ. Holiness. If you will believe that Jesus is God's son and received his gift of forgiveness and confess him and confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you will find that transformation take place. You will find that your sin will be forgiven by a faithful God who loved you even though you were a sinner and his son. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church and service times or what to expect on your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and simple pursuit.